Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. On this episode, we'll be previewing the 11th annual Boston International Kids Film Festival, which kicks off on November the 10th in Watertown, Massachusetts. A little later in this episode, I'll be chatting with Laura Esvito, the festival's director, and my sister, about what attendees can expect to see and experience at this year's festival. But first up is my conversation with Beth Murphy, the director and the co-writer of Our Turn to Talk, a documentary that will kick off this year's BIKFF. Our Turn to Talk is a documentary film focused on teenagers who say that they're the generation to put an end to mental health stigma. To do it, they're telling their own stories, raw and unfiltered. From skyrocketing rates of anxiety and depression to the impacts of racial and intergenerational trauma, these teens share their struggles and triumphs and carry a powerful message. Storytelling saves lives. Here's the film's trailer. Mental health is a problem. No one talks about it because it's scary. I mean, it's not something that you can see. It's not visible. One black boy dying really shakes the whole city. That's somebody's son. I always had pressure on me to be something that I wasn't. We need to talk. This podcast is about teens saying enough is enough. I had an eating disorder for five years, and that's because I kept silent about it. I didn't need this research investigation to conclude that, hey, Instagram is bad for me. But it's like this silent addiction that creeps up on you. Children are using Instagram to self-soothe, but then are exposed to more and more content that makes them hate themselves. Sharing my story helped me recover and helped me accept myself. You can literally start improving the lives of humanity by speaking and being honest about what you've been through. It's the hardships that make you brave. It's the hardships that build you up and prepare you for whatever is next. You shouldn't be ashamed to talk about what's going on in your head because it doesn't make you any less tough. It just makes you human. Most of what we need is just someone to listen and someone who will take the time to try to understand and to try to help us get help. This is our turn to talk. Beth Murphy is the founder of Principal Pictures, a media and impact company dedicated to storytelling for social impact. Beth is a director, producer, and executive producer for more than 20 documentaries, including six award-winning feature films, news reports, podcasts, and photo series. Her work premieres at top-tier festivals globally and can be found across national and international media outlets, including PBS, The New York Times, OpDocs, The History Channel, The Sundance Channel, Discovery Networks, Lifetime, ABC News, and many others. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. Now on to my chat with Beth Murphy. Hello, Beth Murphy. Welcome to Making Media Now. Thank you so much, Michael. Really happy to be here. Sure thing. It's great to be speaking with you. And we're going to be we're speaking with you in advance of your film, Our Turn to Talk, a documentary that you co-wrote and co-directed, which is going to be kicking off this year's Boston International Kids Film Festival, which will be running from November the 10th through November the 12th. Check the notes in the podcast notes uh, for all the information on that festival, and we'll make sure that we push it out through the social media channels of BIKFF 
and Filmmakers Collaborative, but we're really happy to be kicking off this year's festival with your film. So our turn to talk is really just one spoke in the wheel of a multi-pronged initiative around teen mental health. But let's start talking about the documentary. Give us your sort of synopsis on what Our Turn to Talk is all about. Sure. Well, first, I just want to say we are thrilled to be opening the festival, which is which is great. And in large part because, number one, it's a big honor. And second, this film, Our Turn to Talk, is really it's a Gen Z led effort for young people to be really open and honest about the mental health issues that they're going through. And the reality is there is a massive mental health crisis out there. I started working on this film back in the fall of 2019. And it was right around that time in November of 2019 that the Surgeon General came out with a report that said, there's an emergency out there. Kids are in crisis. And as we all know, that was before the pandemic. And the pandemic just really exacerbated the problem and made made everything worse. And so there are you know higher rates of depression, higher rates of anxiety, um, higher rates of suicidal ideation, higher rates of suicide. Um, you know, in 2021, nearly 20% of high school students said they had considered suicide. Uh, emergency department visits rose like over 51% for high school girls. I mean, these are just really um, just dire statistics. And so, you know, while the, the, the crisis is, is so real, um, the film is also offering, you know, insight into solutions and hope. And, you know, positive coping mechanisms through the very, very intimate stories of these, you know, teenagers who are willing to be open, willing to kind of show us the way the world should be by speaking openly and honestly about mental health challenges, just the way you would share like, hey, I've got a broken arm or a broken leg. You know, this is what's this is what's going on. And um, once what we're seeing is that once those kind of open and honest conversations start happening, really dramatic, positive things can happen. I mean, the the whole premise really of this work, and it is, it's a documentary first, but also a podcast series that's ongoing, as well as a national impact campaign. And the underlying premise of all of this is that storytelling saves lives. And the reason that that's true is that storytelling helps to break down stigma mm-hmm. and stigma is a very known and studied contributor to, to suicide. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so, you know, we have, we have some, um, yeah, some, some lofty goals with the, with the project to really make an impact across the country um, on these, on this really, really important issue right now. Um, and I have a teenage daughter and so it's, um, it's also become a very, very personal endeavor for me yeah absolutely so what was what was transpiring in that period of time in 2019 when these statistics started to uh you know find their way into headlines and this this phenomenon started to come into focus this is even before all of these conditions were exacerbated exacerbated by by covid what was happening that that led you to say this is an issue that I want to delve into. And this is, this is an issue that I really want to explore from the perspective of um, multiple protagonists. So I had this really just incredible opportunity to meet um, with a, meet a woman named Jennifer Marshall, who had founded an organization called this is my brave, which is a live storytelling community really for people to, you know, get up on stage and share their mental health stories. And it's, uh, I was so inspired by her work and what she was doing. Um, she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and, you know, had that experience. I think that so many people do where you just become very insular, you're advised, you know, not to share too much. People might react negatively, you know, what's going to happen if you share this kind of, um, kind of that scary unknown, like, you know, um, and, and really that's, it's, it's, it's a scary unknown, but the, the reality is unfortunately because of stigma, you know, sometimes, you know, people do react, do react very negatively. And we see that in the film. I mean, one of the, one of the young people featured in the documentary, um, she, her experience, she was an ice hockey player 
and outside of Chicago. And, you know, she um, did, did not, uh, I won't, you know, give too much away, but, you know, things didn't go so well when she opened up to her coach about what she was going through. And so, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, people do have those really very real interactions with stigma. So um, when I met Jen, Jen Marshall and was so impressed by what she was doing, and I followed some of her work with adults and we made a short film and we've, you know, followed a stage production with lots of different people coming together and sharing their stories and through um, the performing arts and lots of different ways around mental illness and addiction. And, you know, there was everything from singing and songwriting to spoken word, to poetry, to someone did a was a mime and mimed his um, you know his experiences and story, and it was so um, really emotional. And what we what we you know realized is that there was nothing like this out there for young people. And so that kind of those two things coming together, you know, meeting her and then having this you know report coming from the Surgeon General, it's like, well, what can we do to really focus on young people who are really bearing the brunt of this of this crisis mm-hmm. and so um together we decided to put out uh, a national call for teen storytellers to be able to you know put to um put on and for on her side put on and for on our side document the very first national this is my brave teen show Got it. And so our intentions with the film, we had the, the, the path, the production path seemed, you know, really obvious. And like so many filmmakers, um, you know, waiting, waiting for the pandemic to end because we, we had planned to film in schools with the kids and, you know, really follow their, their lives, which became impossible to do as we had originally envisioned. And so, um, so we waited a quite, a, we waited a bit <laughs> and, um, then, you know, changed course, which I'm, you know, ultimately I'm, I'm, you know, very happy with the way the, you know, the course was changed and the way that the, the film came together. Um, in the end, what we do is we follow the making of the, the podcast and the teen host of the podcast, Anastasia Vlasova. She was a senior in high school. And um, at the time she's now in college, as you know, she was, the, is the host of the podcast series. And so throughout the making of the podcast, she's sharing her personal story while inviting other kids to, you know, come on and, and, uh, and share theirs and, we do travel with her across the U.S. as she meets the kids who are, um, you know, are, are participating in it. So after we were done filming, after the film was done, eventually those those the kids um, did get together for a national stage show in Washington D.C., which was really exciting. Uh, so um, so that was you know so that was great. So that initial vision did did come to fruition in 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 that way. <laughs> Yeah, so you mentioned Anastasia or Anastasia. I want to pronounce her name correctly. Who is the the host uh, of all ten episodes of season one of the podcast and the co-host, along with Young Elder, uh, uh, an individual from Baltimore who's featured in the film. She's the co-host of season two of the uh, podcast. You mentioned Morgan, the hockey player. Uh, we also visit with River, uh, who is a, mu- a student and a musician. Um, I can't remember where she lives uh and and then we also tell the story of dylan buckner uh i would say you know not to rank these in terms of whose story is most sad but of course dylan's story is the most finite in the sense that his mental illness led him to take his own life and so you spend time with his family with his with his dad with his brother and you know, I want I, I, I want to sort of get a thumbnail sketch on all of the stories. Dylan's story is interesting because it just really drives home the truth around, you know, what you see on the surface is not indicative of what's going on beneath the surface. Star athlete, super driven, highly competitive, and yet just crippled with depression. Yes. And this is one of those, you know, combination of seeing the mental health crisis really fermenting long before, you know, COVID-19, um, for the pandemic and, and upending lives for kids. Um, but in Dylan's case, you know, it, it went a lot further during the pandemic and, you know, his parents were very clear when I talked with them that they just, that like life just coming to an abrupt halt was, was too much. 
it, 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 you know, um, the increased burden that, that it put on their son was just, you know, just overwhelming. And he had attempted, uh, suicide twice before. And, um, then in January of, um, of 2021, he, he died. The other thing that the, that the pandemic did, I mean, it's, it's so, it's so tragic what happened. And I, I, I'm Dylan's story is one, unfortunately, that, you know, kind of has become all too common and it was really, you know, remarkable, um, you know, for his family, his mom, his dad, his brother to really to share their story with us. And, you know, one of the things that was, that was really interesting in doing so, um, his brother shared with us that Dylan really never, you know, he just didn't want to be a burden to anyone. And so he was very, very private and very, really secretive ultimately about his, his illness and what he was going through. Meanwhile, his younger brother, who was a bit more open about it, was got treatment earlier, was on medication starting in sixth grade. Dylan was a senior in, in high school when he took his life. And so it's, um, you know, again, I, you know, to just kind of reinforce me, one of the, the, the major goals of this work is to reduce stigma right. in a, in a major way. And, you know, um, one of the things that, that really I was, you know, very inspired by what that Jen Marshall shared with me when we first met again, the, the founder of this is my brave, you know, she said only when we're putting, you know, names and faces on these conditions, you know, only then can stigma be overcome. Like we have to, we have to own it. And I think that's very, that's very powerful. And we've been, we've been, you know, really, you know, seeing that we've been doing some scientific research, um, both with the short film and with the podcast series Mm -hmm. and are seeing that, you know, when young people, teenagers in particular engage with this content, two things are happening. One is that stigma is going down both self stigma, like, you know, how we feel about ourselves, but also how we look at stigma in society. Um, and so that stigma is going down in those two ways and what's going up are positive feelings about getting help, Mm -hmm. which is, which is, which is fantastic. Did you learn Dylan's story in retrospect, or was he part of the uh, the individuals who had come forward with a story to share, uh, and then COVID hit, and he took his life? In retrospect, so we, retrospect, um, yeah. yeah, we reached out to we reached out to his family. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we learned about you know what had happened. Told them you know what we were doing and and you know what our goals were, mm-hmm. and they they were willing to um they were willing to you know talk with us and do the filming with us right so you mentioned that when we first started speaking about how this entire initiative the documentary and the podcast and the in campaign impact campaign uh is really predicated on the the potentially life-altering power of storytelling and the storytelling is the individual stories, whether it's what they struggle with in terms of depression or eating disorder or, uh, you know, g- uh, questions around gender uh, or or perhaps it, it e- it's even the ups and downs, yang and yang of adolescence. But the giving voice to uh, what they're going through when when you're working with your collaborators and you're delving into into this subject matter how do you know where you know what that individual might be sharing it's so important to share it because the sharing creates community and it lessens stigma as you said but how do you also know where well this person requires more than sharing where the telling of this story you know i i think about dylan and then you know his brother who who also has depression issues and to a lay person the first thought is wow is this is this hereditary is is there some type of a biological connection here and would all the sharing in the world not make a dent in that well, it's interesting. I, I thought where you were going with that is that sort of, you know, is it is it safe for young people to share their stories or could there be further further trauma or, you know, when they're so young, are they like, you know, informed enough to be able to to share? So one of the things that we did um, as part of the 
review process for all of the submissions that we had gotten. We did it, you know, an initial, you know, um, sorting of things and, you know, kind of analyzing and pre-interviews with people um, to, to learn more about them. But um, part of that, a big part of that was understanding what their support system was, where they were in their healing journey. And we also had mental health professionals reviewing the applications as well okay. uh, to make sure that um, that a mental health professional was was deeming it to be a safe situation yep. for this person to share their story. And of course, everyone who was underage, their parents were involved in pretty much every case um, we interviewed one, if not both of the parents mm-hmm. also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in, on Dylan's story, I also found it very heartening that uh, you speak with a good friend of his and and That's he recounts, you know, he, the, the friend's own uh, battles with with, with um, uh, mental health concerns and how how Dylan would share with him. So it. It was heartening in the sense that these guys were both athletes. These guys were both in the, you know, sort of stereotypical uh, jock culture of high school. And it it does give one a little bit of hope. Uh, obviously, tragically sad, the the um, path that, di- that, that Dylan's uh, mental illness took. But it does give one a little bit of hope in the sense that these were conversations that they felt that they could have while... Uh, staying secure and being, you know, male athletes, et cetera. Well, I think that's one of the most amazing things that you know I've seen during this whole process is just like really these these young people really are showing us the way the world kind of could and should be mm-hmm. by by opening up, by sharing, by talking with each other, by talking, you know, more publicly. So I see, you know, we we see in so many different ways the way young people around the world have really are just so focused on, you know, social justice and human rights and doing good in the world and being leaders in a variety of movements, whether it's, you know, gun control or, you know, addressing the climate crisis. And, you know, I say right now, there really is an incredible youth mental health movement and youth mental health advocacy and being done that we really want to contribute to, want to help amplify their voices, want to help grow that movement in a really powerful way. I mean, there's so much research out there that shows how important, um, you know, peer-to-peer help is and how meaningful it is and how it really does um, create change. And so that's, um, that's a, you know, big part of what we're, big part of what we're doing. Um, Along with our turn to talk, uh, we've built a, a community called ZChat, and it's a free online community. And it's there's also a rewards program attached to it um, because we really do believe that this is you know life saving content. Teenagers who want to engage in you know positive like help seeking behaviors, um, this kind of content supports that, and we want to reward kids who who then do that. So um, so ZChat is this 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 online community where kids can go and talk to other other kids who you know, also want to prioritize their mental well-being and that of their peers. So, um, so these things, you know, we hope, you know, work, um, you know, in tandem with one another, we haven't done really a, you know, big launch yet of, of Z chat that's happening, um, over the next couple of months as we were doing a, um, a rollout of the, of the film and the impact campaign with, um, dozens of schools in New York city and kind of the, the rollout will be, will be part of that, um, and there's a, a lot of a lot of things happening with school screenings um, with a number of different uh, partners right now. And it'll be interesting because there's a lot of um, back end analytics that are attached to ZChat mm-hmm. that will give us some really interesting research about media engagement with young people and rewards as it connects to um, kind of media and mental health um, and teens. And I think, um, it will be it'll be interesting to um, to share that research once we have it. What did you discover through the the making of this film 
uh, about the role that the environment, either the family environment, the school environment, uh, the socioeconomic environment within which uh, all of these kids are, are are struggling with their with their individual issues. What role did that did did environment play in presenting opportunities for them and also challenges? Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a really, really big issue. Um, you know, so you've, if people have heard of the ACEs, right? Adverse childhood experiences. And I would say, I, mean, I can't think of any young person we spoke with who had not gone through adverse childhood experiences. Um, so they're, you know, but they're, you know, they're different, of course. Um, you mentioned Young Elder, who is co-host of season two of the podcast, she lives in Baltimore and really is addressing community trauma and, you know, looking at the ways and understanding the ways that poverty and racism and violence really intersect to have a really dramatic deleterious effect on people's mental health from a young age. And so she, um, she was invited by the mayor of Baltimore to join a task force and it's, you know, it's focused on addressing community trauma as the trauma informed care task force and what it, what it means. And it's the, it's the first of a kind in the United States. And hopefully there will be more, and this will be a model for other cities. But what it means is that people who are, you know, responding to crises need to be informed about trauma and the role that trauma plays in manifesting mental health illnesses, addiction, and how to, how to, you know, properly connect with, you know, handle those situations given the role of trauma. What have you learned as a documentary filmmaker with decades of experience uh, about immersing yourself in the lives of, of individuals while not influencing to the point where they're performing i think it's just a matter of just being present and you know connecting and you know and it's interesting with teens i mean i'm not anywhere near my teenage years anymore but uh but you know what because i have a, a teenage daughter when i started making this she was 12 we very quickly um you know, came into, I mean, really was very, very soon after the pandemic hit within a month, many of the issues that we're addressing in the film, we began addressing in our own home. Mm -hmm. And so, um, what, what I was navigating personally, um, uh, just, you know, gave me a new, like new language, new experiences to connect both with the kids and with their families in really meaningful ways. And I think, um, I mean, that's what I have found, you know, time and time again with work, whether it's in Afghanistan or Iraq or here in the United States, that when we connect just as human beings, and there's so many, so many ways that we do that, that are so meaningful, that's really what it's all about. And, you know, this one, this has been just, you know, particularly personal. Um, a lot of my work before has focused on issues around women and girls, which as a woman and former girl, I you know, um, feel a deep connection with always, um, you know, anywhere in the world, because so, so many, so many issues that we, that we face um, are the, you know, are the same and, you know, having empathy and understanding and trying to having as a goal to build, you know, empathy and understanding and bridges between people has always been really a, the main motivator of my work. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's true in this, in this case as well, but it's, um, I will say that goes, it, what, what goes beyond that is, you know, the, the media itself, you know, hopefully does engender, you know, empathy, mm -hmm. but I also am very, um, not just hopeful, but, but really, um, really motivated to try to move people from that empathy into action. And what does that look like? And, you know, so here with this film, um, you know, yes, the young people are talking so much about the challenges that they're facing, 
but it's also very solutions oriented. You know, how is it that they kind of are, you know, getting to the other side? What does that, what does that look like? You know, what are the positive coping mechanisms that these kids were able to employ to be able to, you know, help overcome the crisis that they were facing. And not to say that, not to, you know, Pollyanna-ish here and say, oh, now it's, you know, gone forever. But what does it look like to live with something and, and, you know, well, and have a fulfilling life and choose, let's say, going out for a run instead of, you know, picking up a you know bottle of vodka. So, um, so I think that that's um, in, in this case also, you know, motivating motivating kids to, for the, for the, you know, an action being reducing stigma, but an action also for kids who are watching to be able to feel more comfortable talking about what they're going through, talking about getting help. And then for the adults in their lives, because, you know, adults are the gatekeepers to care in right. most cases. And so for adults in the kids' lives to feel, um, to be more supportive of getting kids the help that they need. What have you observed, um, whether it's with parents or whether it's just with the the uh, other adults that are surround surround kids, where they can listen to and believe and understand to the best of their ability the reality of of uh, their child's life, while not feeling judged, not feeling blamed? Do I can imagine a scenario where a parent would feel like my child's mental illness has got to be a reflection on me and that makes me feel bad. So I'm going to shut down around that and define it as just, you know, kids being kids. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. It's a very emotional question. I mean, I myself have felt that and really it's, um, you know, you just as a parent can often go to a pretty, pretty dark place um, because you you just want more than anything to, you know, support your child and um, just have everything, everything be okay. And, you know, sometimes you have to accept that it really is okay to not be okay. And, you know, walking, walking that path is, is really challenging, especially when you see, you know, no end in sight. I mean, I'll never forget when I, when I interviewed, um, young elder's mother, I was in a really, just really bad place with my daughter and just so, you know, scared that we'd like, we'd never, we'd never see the light. And it just, you know, just everything was so upended and, um, young elder's mom, Toby, she said to me, um, she said, you know, this all, this all started when, when young elder was in seventh grade she said now she's a freshman in college and we're just coming to the other side of it. Right. Right. And I remember thinking, my God, this is year seven for the family. And so, you know, it gives you a sense of reality about when, like when you are in the thick of it, that sometimes there are no quick solutions you know, you, you really have to be just so patient, so vigilant, so everything, you know, it's, um, there, <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's so, uh, you know, and I, I, you know, during that, during that interview, I mean, we, I'll never forget it. I mean, it was one of the most kind of powerful moments in my whole life and career. And, you know, we, we just, we, we stood up and we hugged and, you know, just, you know, shared and, um, and so, you know, so for, parents to, you know, to, um, you know, parents are growing too. I mean, for the most parents have never gone through this before. So, you know, parents are, parents are learning. And, you know, one of the things that has been really, um, and still is really, really dire is that, and this is another, you know, kind of result of the pandemic, really exposing all the existing cracks in the healthcare system. You know, mm-hmm. you call up, you call to get help and, oh yeah, great. Um, you need a, you know, psychologist, you need an eating disorder doctor. That'll be, well, let's look at the schedule. Oh yeah. Six or eight months right. before you're going to be able to see someone. And so, you know, there's just a severe shortage of care. Um, there are, there are 14 pediatric psychiatrists for every 100,000 patients. That's astounding. Yeah. Wow. It's terrible. 
So we've mentioned Young Elder's name a few times, and I just I, I just want to clue listeners in that there's an excellent reason <laughs> that this yes. young woman goes by that name. When you hear her speak, when you hear her perform, her her music just blew me away. Um, and she yeah, says her. She says early on in the film that I can't remember if she specifies a particular a particular age that people started telling her, wow, you're you're such an old soul. You're so wise. Your observations are so wise. And so she was uh, tagged with the moniker Young Elder. It's yes. quite fitting. <laughs> It really is. Yeah, no, she's an amazing musician and community activist. We yeah. uh, recently went out to VidCon together in Anaheim and did a whole like a few presentations, but one was a, a multimedia presentation where she performed live on stage, her rap music, and we showed different clips of the documentary um, and, you know, interwoven and she spoke and it was just, yeah, it was really, really powerful. She had, there were people, like she was walking down the street that evening and people were driving by in, the, in their cars, their heads out the window. We love you. you know, <laughs> yeah, I am not surprised. <laughs> I am not surprised. So the role of social media uh, plays a crucial uh, part in, in the story of all of these individuals and the lives of all of these individuals. And it, it's really so complicated because on one, in one way, the social media is an accelerant to almost all of the feelings of negativity that they are that they're dealing with because the messaging of social media is what's wrong with you the rest of us are perfect can't you see how perfect we are there's the comparison etc on the other hand lacking social media none of this connection can really take place none of the healthy connection and when you step away from it you know one of the one of the things that becomes clear as day is that it's the which social media engines platforms uh, are are looking at those kids as simply uh, units to be delivered to advertisers versus which social media uh, systems or platforms um, really do exist to create connection which back in the the nascent days of social media that was the dream that was we were all going to be connected and you know all of uh all of our unified experiences were going to lift all of our prospects and all of our hopes so it it it, it did strike me as um just a, a common thread through all of their 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 stories and that blade cutting both ways I, I heard every word you said. I was also just texting my daughter to see if she would come downstairs because I would love using for her social to, media. <laughs> I would love for her to share a story with you. So they just had a wellness day at her school, okay, Tabor Academy in Marion and Massachusetts. And the wellness day a couple of weeks ago, um, they they showed a, a story um, where it was. Um, well, let, let me let her tell it if she if she comes down. If she doesn't, I'll I'll, I'll do my best. Wow. Um, but yeah, so social media we address in the film because Anastasia connects her eating disorder, her anxiety, and her depression to the time at which she started using social media, specifically Instagram, right. and in seventh grade, and wanting to be a media, social media influencer and the negative turn that that quickly took that it was a lot of fun at the beginning and then whew, it just you know imploded and her whole like sense of self-worth was based on the number of you know likes and dislikes that she was getting and then it just you know really spiraled from there and what happens is the the um and Frances Hagen, who who testified in front of Congress, I mean, really, you know, dramatic, you know, testimony from former Facebook employee talking about the fact that, you know, Facebook, which owns um, Instagram now, knows that its algorithms are particularly, uh, you know, having um, you know horrible impacts and consequences, especially for young girls, yep. and ignored that reality so um so we do we, we actually fe feature some of her testimony um anastasia actually became kind of a the, the bit of a you know face of that facebook whistleblower campaign um through a wall street journal 
investigation and, um, you know, a written series as well as, you know, podcast series. She was interviewed extensively for that work, um, based on her own experiences with the platform, you know, and she says in the film, she says, you know, I didn't, I didn't need this investigation to tell me Facebook was, or Instagram was bad for me. You know, I was, I was, was living it. Um, but the question is sort of, you know, like, you know, then what, I mean, not everyone is going to be able to do what Anastasia has done, which is just delete it permanently. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, most people, you know, social media is not going anywhere for any of us. And I think it will be few among us who you know, are able to really say goodbye for good. So how do we, how do we manage it? How do we know about the negative impacts that it can have, recognize those? So I think, um, you know, the idea of digital detox and how to, how to use that, how to integrate that into your life is really important. And for young people to understand that, um, how much is not real out there right has to be an education component unfortunately you know we're the generation we the parents have been guinea pigs the kids have been guinea pigs um you know there's we her former school um they did a um we had a parent meeting with the um uh the organization that's, that's you know featured in the document the wonderful documentary on this topic um at any rate, what they, someone asked, oh, like at what age, you know, should kids get a phone? And he's like, let me just put it this way. And like, no parent says, oh, I wish I'd given my kid a phone earlier. Right. Like that just, that's not going to happen. But my daughter has not come downstairs. So I'll just share briefly <laughs> with you. Um, <laughs> <all right>. he, <laughs> I'm hesitating to be like, eh, no, um, <laughs> they were, so teen, it was a teenage girl posting. Okay. A made up teenage girl posts on Instagram, does nothing, interacts with no content, doesn't respond to anything. And then you start to see what's coming up in the feed. And it goes from healthy cooking mm -hmm. to fashion things within like five generations of this. I mean, so like very, very quickly, you're getting eating disorder content. Sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, I've wondered since, um, uh, you know, that the that Facebook whistleblower, Francis Hagen, who you mentioned, I think that was two years ago now, or maybe it was even more time just sort of melts into yeah. itself. Yes. But <laughs> I am wondering whether and maybe you've detected this either uh, with your daughter or just in the with the teens that you've met through the rollout of the Inc impact campaign for this film. Are there not, you know, small armies of teens who are thinking, you know what? No, we're going to confound your algorithm. No, 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 no. We're not clicking on that ad because that's essentially all that the that's the business model of these social media companies. We're going to deliver to deliver eyeballs and clicks to your ads and we're going to serve up uh, the self-esteem of highly impressionable already in just developing young minds and i'm just wondering whether there's been a um uh, a, um anything that constitutes a significant pushback against that 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 is causing the metas of the world and the tiktoks of the world to take a, a more responsible approach to how they're engaging with uh, this particular demographic of users I particularly see that movement with young people in their 20s, like mid to late 20s, um, who have had, you know, just maybe just a bit more maturity to kind of, you know, analyze, analyze things. Right. And it's these are the so-called digital natives. Yeah. And who, it's not that young people aren't doing it. I mean, right. they, they are. I mean, I see that even with my own daughter and her friends, you know, digital detox, you know, time away from it, um, setting you know, a big thing now is, you know, setting, um, you know, timers. So you don't allow yourself, you know, any more than, you know, 30 minutes on that particular app that day or an hour, whatever you, whatever you choose, something that, you know, feels manageable to you, um, and integrating those kinds of things into your daily life. But I, I haven't seen a real young person movement, mm -hmm. you know, teenage, you know, high school or like middle high schoolers, um, you know, doing, doing it at the, at the scale that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. What have you, what have you discovered about, um, how the podcast as a companion piece, uh, to, to the film, uh, has furthered conversations, has opened up new avenues of conversation. And what has that made you think about as a, uh, media maker 
uh, in terms of, you know, d- uh, different opportunities for this so important storytelling. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really excited about the podcast series because it is it is ongoing. And even though we are you know planning to do more multimedia storytelling, audio, you know, the audio component of this with the podcast is really a focus moving forward. Um, so much so that, you know, after we do school screenings, we're going to have um pop-up booths and storytelling booths where young people will be invited to, you know, share their stories, just, you know, talk and, you know, open up. And so I think that, you know, having that ongoing conversation is is really important so that, you know, more and more people can see themselves in the storytelling that's being done. And it will really, you know, resonate, um, you know, for anyone who's, for anyone who's listening. And I will say, even though the podcast is made, you know, first and foremost, you know, kind of by and for, teenagers and that is our you know primary audience parents want to hear what kids are talking about sure. and parents who are going through this crisis they want to try to understand i mean you know i'll never forget when um when when my daughter was you know first um when we first saw signs of her eating disorder i didn't know you know where to turn i was just kind of you know desperate for information and i i came across this 45 minute podcast that was, I don't can't remember. I mean, I feel bad because it was, it was, it was just, it was not well produced. It was, you know, the, the audio quality wasn't very good. It was, it didn't matter. I listened to this thing like five times in a row because mm-hmm. I just wanted any nugget of knowledge, um, you know, anything that could help not, not, not ease the pain, but actually, you know, provide some, some, some hope that things will get better. Yes. But also just, you know, real, real information about, you know, actions to take things, maybe the right way to say things, things, the things not to say, you know, you're, um, and I think that that's something that was really striking to me during this whole production and, and continues to be, which is when you grow up as, as I did, and as our generation, I think many of us in, in our generation did sort of the, you know, pull yourself by the bootstraps, don't, you know, don't complain, get over it. Like, give me a break. Like that's all nonsense. You know, you're sad, whatever, uh, that you don't even have the language to use to have these conversations. So if we don't even know how, like what language to to discuss this, how can we teach it to our kids? Exactly. So I think so many of us have been kind of learning on the learning on the fly and, um, you know, I do a lot of, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of reading and honestly, this work over the years prepared me, I think better than most, you know, professions might for these kinds of conversations, um, within our, within our home, but it's still really, it's still really challenging. And so I think, um, I hope that the, you know, the podcast, because it does include, you know, the kids, but all, we also include, you know, parent interviews that young people are hearing themselves. They're also, you know, maybe they get a nugget that helps them share something with the parent or it gives a nugget to the parent that helps them understand what the kid is going through. So, you know, a parent doesn't say something like, well, you have a great life. Like, what do you have to be sad about? Um, You know, a much, you know, kind of an all too common knee jerk reaction. I think, Um, you know, so many kids have, you know, shared that, that with us, that that's um, kind of the reaction that they got when they, you know, tried to go to their, their parents. And some parents just deny help. Like, no, you're not, no, you don't need a, you don't need a therapist. No, absolutely not. Yeah, it does feel like one of those movements, and 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 I guess I'm broadly defining the movement right now as you know this movement around having the conversation. Just as you said at the very top of our conversation, just telling the story, giving it validity, making it feel like it's okay to say it. I, I the younger generation is forced to sort of do this trailblazing uh, for an older generation that perhaps. Uh, wasn't confident enough or brave enough uh, to develop that vocabulary on their own. And just in having that conversation, it doesn't mean that, you know, every up and down uh, or every rejection or insecurity of adolescence is somehow pathologized. But what it's, it's simply giving permission to be able to talk about it. Consequential, inconsequential, when you shut it down, I mean, we have, you know, reams and reams of evidence of uh, mental illness rife in the adult population. Imagine if that individual 15 years ago 
had felt like it was their turn to talk and somebody would be listening. That just gave me the chills and, and something that had such a profound impact on me. We have in the film a former NHL hockey player mm -hmm. and, you know, he talks about, you know, he suffered from depression but, you know, just wanted to power through as an athlete, you know, gosh, if you were to show, you know, that quote, you know, weakness, you just couldn't do it. It wouldn't, you know, just wouldn't have happened. He wasn't going to do it. So he just, you know, shut his mouth and persevered. And he said, now here I am. And I think this is true for so many adults. Now here I am, I'm in my thirties and I'm trying to go backwards. Now I'm trying to fix it. And it's not that it's too late, but imagine how much better those, years could have been Absolutely. so i think you, know, you you sweep it under the rug as a teenager and you don't deal with it it's probably not going away it's probably going to manifest itself in other behaviors you know other things you know maybe it's develop it starts an unhealthy coping mechanism yes. or a suppression mechanism so at some point it's going to need to be dealt with so you mentioned that the uh, the film is shown in, in schools a lot to kick off conversations, et cetera. What other uh, modes of exhibition uh, have you been taking with the film? And um, what do you see as the impact campaign sort of like ongoing mission to so that it doesn't feel like, OK, I saw the movie. Now I'm on my own kind of a thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. So we've um, we have a lot of partners for the impact campaign, a lot of um, national mental health organization partners that we're really excited about. The Jed Foundation wrote the screening playbook to accompany the film. And we've been doing a lot of screenings with NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, hmm. and both um, a lot of their you know chapters have been doing screenings I, almost every day, I have another request for a chapter screening, which is really exciting. And we're also working with um, with NAMI and the American School Counselor Association on a new program to have our Turn to Talk service some foundational training for school counselors around mental health. And we're we're really excited about that. Um, you know that program as well. There are you know. So the you know thousands and thousands. I mean that ASCA itself has forty thousand plus um, school counselors as part mm -hmm. of their organization, and we've been working very closely um, with the New York City public school system over the past five six months um, to plan the program that we're launching there starting um, in November, where they're bringing together so many school counselors to watch the film, have a conversation, and then you know, talk about the ways in which they're going to be bringing it back into their communities. And the, and, and once the, once, you know, young people are in those screenings with the schools in the community screenings, that's when they have the opportunity to become part of the Z chat community and are given, you know, um, they can collect keys. So with every podcast episode they listen to, they can collect a unique key you know, any things online, whether it's the full film or some of the shorter, you know, we've done some um, clips, um, all any of the, the content that we're producing when they, that has a unique code connected to it. And then they can get this key and those keys unlock certain rewards, whether it's, you know, a conversation with, you know, an athlete or an influencer or a unique opportunity to collaborate with a musician, um, merch, you know, discounts or free merch, you know, things like that. And so, um, we are really excited to explore how that helps young people to continue to engage with very positive help and health seeking, you know, behaviors. And we are also um, through these screenings, you know, giving young people, you know, an opportunity to let us know if they'd like to share their story. And so, um, and that can happen through the, the storytelling booth, um, or in, you know, longer, you know, interview settings for the, you know, for a podcast episode. So the documentary is Our Turn to Talk. The podcast is Our Turn to Talk. And I've been speaking with 
Beth Murphy, the co-director and co-writer of the documentary. Uh, Beth, as I mentioned at the top of our conversation, uh, will be joining us at the Boston International Kids Film Festival on beginning on November the 10th. And uh, your film will be kicking this off. And the website that folks can go to for all of the information about the organizations and the, the resources that you mentioned is... OurTurnToTalk.com. Beth, thank you for your time and thank you for this film and this initiative. This has been fun. Oh, thanks a lot, Michael. Appreciate it. And now on to my chat with Laura Acevedo, the director of BIKFF, for a preview of this year's festival. Hello, Laura Acevedo. Hello, Michael Acevedo. All right, there you go. See how easy we banter that difficult to pronounce last name between the two of us? I wonder why that is. It's like we're used to it. We're not. Laura Azevedo, executive director of Filmmakers Collaborative and Filmmakers Collaborative is the sponsoring organization of both Making Media Now, but for purposes of this chat, more importantly, for BIKFF, which is the Boston International Kids Film Festival, which will be playing in Watertown, Massachusetts from November the 10th to November the 12th this year. And Laura, it's great to chat with you. Thanks. It's great to chat with you. As I look back in the archives of Making Media Now, you joined us on episode one. That was a good one. That really was a great crazy. one. And then you just ghosted us for 101 episodes. And here you are. It's busy. You it's been, been busy. busy. All right. The matter at hand, BIKFF 23. What should be we, we be super excited about? It's going to be awesome. Um, November 10th through 12th at the Mosession Center for the Arts in Watertown, Massachusetts, as you said. Um, the festival started 11 years ago, and it is a weekend of both professionally made and student made films. It, there's about 50 50 is the breakup that we break up into age appropriate blocks. And so what we have is Friday, we show feature films. Saturday is a whole day full of short films, each broken up by, um, as I said, age appropriate blocks. Um, and that is when we show all of our student made films. So we have student made animations, screening, student made documentaries and student made live action films. In addition to live action films made by professional filmmakers, all geared towards kids. We're the film festival <clears throat> that screens films for, by, and about kids. And the student-made films, what's the distribution of the student-made films that come out of FC Academy, uh, which is the filmmaking uh, course that FC brings around to uh, schools and youth groups all over the state of Massachusetts? Um, what's what's the distribution of films that are made by kids that are the byproduct of FC Academy students? So that's one specific block Great. that's showing on Saturday afternoon. Um, November 11th from 1230 to two o'clock. That must be a big thrill um, for the kids to see something that they made up on a the big screen, as they say. It's such a blast. So just to step back for a second, the festival, as I said, started 11 years ago, screening both professionally and student made films. And we were a couple of years into the festival when we noticed that the student-made blocks were the most popular blocks. Because when a kid makes a movie, the whole family comes to see it. Everybody that's in the movie comes to see it. We treat the filmmakers exactly the same, whether you're seven years old, as is the case of our youngest filmmaker this year, or 70. Everybody wears the badge, walks the red carpet, gets their picture taken, and everybody comes down to the front of the audience for Q&A. So year two, when we said, wow, kids really like to make films, Filmmakers Collaborative has this fantastic network of independent filmmakers. And we thought, wow, here's an opportunity where maybe we could teach the next generation how to make short films and then screen the films at the festival. So that effort began in 2016, where we piloted the program in three towns. And now here we are in 2023. And last summer, we ran it 32 times. Um, wow. And it's by far the 
my kind of my favorite part of the festival because of the excitement that the kids show and the excitement that the families get to have in right. order, you know, to sort of see their kids being so proud and sharing their work. Yep. Um, but it has gotten big enough to the point where we show FC Academy films year round. So we have, for instance, in the summertime, we did a drive-in screening where we showed them outside. We'll do it again in March to show FC Academy films. And then the best of the best get sort of to be in our flagship film festival, which is this one coming up next weekend. That's awesome. So in addition to the fact that the uh, films made by kids tended to be the most popular blocks uh, in the festival, given that you're going into your 11th year uh, of this festival, what else have you learned maybe in general about running a film festival and specific to BIKFF? What particularly resonates with um, attendees and audiences? Oh my God. What have I learned about running a film festival uh, is literally everything because I knew absolutely nothing when we started. Um, on our board at the time was the founder of Filmmakers Collaborative, a filmmaker named Mikkel Goldman. And Mikkel is also the founder of the Boston Jewish Film Festival, massive festival that's now in its, I think, 37th year. Another board member at the time, suggested that we start a film festival just for kids. It started because FC has this network of filmmakers, as I said, and a really deep library of independent films that have been made often with kids in mind, mm -hmm. either for educational purposes or entertainment purposes. And But the kids weren't seeing them. And so... And you could go to a film festival, especially in the fall in New England, almost every weekend if you wanted to. But none of them were geared towards specifically this age group. And mm -hmm. so we started it to fill this this um, hole, what I thought saw as a hole uh, or what we saw as a hole. But Mikkel was sitting on the board when somebody was talking about we should start a film festival and was sort of shaking her head and saying, you have no idea what it takes to mm. put a film festival together. But I was like, we can do it. I can do it. We can do it. And she was right. I had no idea what it takes. Um, throughout the weekend, we have 12 separate blocks. As I said, we break them into age appropriate blocks. And it's sort of like throwing 12 separate parties because the audience is going to be a little bit different for each block. And yep. you need to be sure to market to each audience so they know what they're going to see when they come to see it. And so you have the better you are at doing that, the more the bigger the audience is going to be and the more the more fun it's going to be for the filmmakers and the audience members. You probably have more than a few of these stories, but anything top of mind in terms of films that uh debuted at the BIKFF over the last decade that have gone on to find a bigger audience or uh, win awards or just a claim of some sort. Back in 2020, we screened a short animated film that ended up winning best animated short with us in our festival and then went on that March to be nominated for best animated short in the 93rd academy awards wow there's and, a distinction yeah and so i can i can almost guarantee that gave a bigger audience than what we were able to give them um yeah but it really does speak to the quality of the films that are that are that are being screened for sure there it's unbelievable we we open submissions every february um we receive about 250 mostly short films and the quality is off the charts yeah and these short of a short film you think that a short film doesn't take that much less work to produce than yep. a feature length film right. and arguably it's it's harder because you have to be more succinct in every choice you make mm -hmm. and more deliberate um but the quality is off the charts the student made ones are phenomenal and so i the hardest part of the process of putting a film festival together begins day one when you open submissions 
and have to start saying no to some because of a limited time um, allotment for each screening. So in addition to the student-made films and some of the shorter blocks, what can attendees also look forward to in terms of feature-length films and maybe any other uh, special events or special guests that you guys have planned? Sure. So not counting festival, me, of course. Yeah, exactly. You'll <laughs> be you'll be present. Um, the festival opens Friday, November tenth at three p.m. with a screening of a feature length doc called "Our Turn to Talk." Really cool um, project. It's it's a podcast. "Our Turn to Talk" is a podcast hosted by teens discussing their mental health journey. Yep. And in fact, this episode of Making Media Now features the conversation with uh, Beth Murphy, the director of that film. Phenomenal. And so I'm really proud to be opening the festival with that and sort of putting teens mental health um, front and center. Um, that is a free screening. So any it's Friday at three o'clock, open to the public. We want as many people to come in as possible to see that. Um, that evening, we're screening a really fun other another documentary called Superpower Dogs, which tells the story of puppies being trained all around the world to become rescue dogs. And we have a couple very special guests that are going to be at that screening, mm-hmm. of whom are dogs. Um, one guess four legs. They they do. Yep. Um, the. One dog is going to be with his owner, who is a veteran. We're also celebrating Veterans Day weekend next weekend. So we have invited a veteran to come and bring his service dog with him, who's going to demonstrate all the cool things, really amazing things that service dogs do. Everything from like if this person happens to drop a credit card on the floor, a dog can pick up a credit card and give it to him. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Yeah. Um, And then we'll also have a therapy dog there who you can touch and play with. (laughs) Um, And we have a workshop on Saturday afternoon, an animation workshop. Again, that one's free. Um, It's going to teach you how animators create storyboards and everybody's going to walk away with their own storyboard on Sunday. Sunday's a day towards entire geared entirely towards kids ages 10 and under and in the middle of that day, we have a woman named Tanya Wright joining us. Tanya is an actress, writer, producer, director, filmmaker, one of these people that can literally do it all. You may know Tanya from her work in either Orange is the New Black or True Blood. Um, she's really excellent. But she has a whole curriculum built around a project called Big Hair Harriet. Hmm. And it is a story that teaches about young girls empowerment. And the film that she's bringing with us is a film used that uses puppets. It's called good night, Harriet. We're going to watch her film. And then Tanya is going to do a puppet making workshop with children where kids can make their own puppets and bring those home. So that's on Sunday. That's fantastic. So it's really a uh, experiential Uh, festival you can watch great films you can meet great dogs and filmmakers and participate in in some of these fantastic activities uh if people want more information about the lineup and how to get tickets and so forth can you point them in the right direction sure check out the website www.bikff.org thank you laura look forward to seeing you at the festival thank you michael i'll see you there